Welcome to another edition of Market Impact Insights, your podcast source for business leadership perspectives to help your business grow. Hear from experts in marketing, sales, business strategy, and more with practical advice for business success. Make sure you won't miss the latest episodes by visiting marketimpactnow.com. Now, here's your host, Dan Albaum. Welcome back, everyone. And I don't need to tell you that we are living in very disruptive times. The impact of the coronavirus is impacting how we interact, uh, how we live our lives, uh, how we think about activities, um, just changing our whole mindset. So first and foremost, I want to extend a wish for health and safety to all of you. And we're going to talk about disruption today in the context of business and technology with our guest, Don Proctor. Don is the founder and CEO of BK97 Digital, which provides advisory services to companies and government agencies on everything from product strategy to innovation, technology policy, and cybersecurity. So bear with me here because Don has a long list of accomplishments, but I think it'll give you some context for for all of the um, perspective that he brings in today's discussion. Don was previously a senior vice president at Cisco Systems, where he led the cybersecurity task force. And in that capacity, he worked with worldwide government leaders in defense, civilian agencies, and the intelligence community to advance the safety, privacy, and integrity of their critical infrastructure. He's also a leadership fellow with the National Association of Corporate Directors and holds the CERT certificate in cyber risk oversight for board directors. Don had a real distinguished career at Cisco, which he joined in 1995. He held a variety of leadership positions in the company's enterprise, commercial, and service provider businesses. He served as a senior vice president and general manager of Cisco's software engineering group. He was also responsible for the development of Cisco's iOS software, network management, voice over IP, web collaboration, and global government businesses. Don was Senior Vice President and General Manager of Cisco's Collaboration Software Group, the Voice Technology Group, Service Provider Switching Group. Early in his tenure at Cisco, he led the product team that developed Cisco's first integrated voice and data router. So he knows a lot about innovation and opening up new markets. He also continues to serve as the founding CEO of the Center for Cisco Heritage, the LLC that's responsible for Cisco's historical archives. Prior to joining Cisco, he worked for software maker Sybase. Don's a graduate of the University of California, Berkeley, and has taught in graduate programs both at UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business, the UC Berkeley College of Engineering, San Francisco State University, and the University of San Francisco's Silicon Valley Immersion Program. Don is also a trustee on the board of the Computer History Museum in Mountain View, California, and previously served in a number of leadership roles on the National Board for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. He is a chair emeritus of the advisory board of the Lawrence Hall of Science, focused on K-12 STEM education, and was a founding member of the advisory board for the National College Promise Campaign. That's a lot, Don, but welcome to the program. Uh, Thank you, Dan. And, you know, Don, we're going to get into the disruption factor and, and take a look back at, at historical learnings and what that means for leaders as, as they move forward. But before we do that, 
I'd like to go back in time in terms of your own career, because you've actually accomplished quite a bit, both in terms of business technology, but also on the academic side. And I'd love to hear more about what fueled your passion to bridge both of those worlds. Was that something that was a, a real goal of yours early on, or did that just develop over time? Uh, well, Dan, uh, thanks for the uh, wonderful introduction. Um, uh, the um, the academic part was something I kind of backed into. I've I've never been a professional um, academic, but um, uh, I do think there's an important role for practitioners like me to play in our education system, and, and this is something that I've done um, throughout most of my career. Uh, sometimes. There are um, things happening in the environment in the moment that aren't yet captured in literature, say, or research. Sometimes there are nuances that that um, need to be conveyed that I think students benefit from. But there's also a benefit, I think, for um, for the instructor in uh, in this environment. Most of us spend 99% of our energy focused on uh, the mission of the moment and um, conveying some of that learning to other people gives us a chance to um, gain some perspective and think about what we're doing in a way that we don't often get to. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, you're joining us from San Francisco, the Bay Area, which is really uh, this, this hot spot for continuous innovation um, and so much about future. But one of the themes in terms of what you've gotten involved in is really cultivating historical preservation. And I'd love to hear more about your personal view on, on what we can gain by looking to our past as we're trying to shape better futures. Uh, yeah, thanks, Dan. As you've mentioned, I've uh, served on a couple of museum boards in the STEM area. And um, something that occurred to me a few years ago, having been at Cisco through uh, several different phases, is that a lot of times we don't appreciate what's historically important until it's too late. And this is certainly true in, uh, in business. And um, what we decided to do a few years ago was to create a, a, an LLC, a fully owned subsidiary of Cisco, to be responsible for uh, the corporate archives. And since that time, we've collected thousands and thousands of artifacts going back to, uh, to Cisco's early years, uh, a couple of hundred oral histories with, with key players. And um, we've got those things preserved now for, for posterity. What I've learned about the importance of history is that there's really two parts. One is preservation, keeping stuff before it goes away. Uh, and the other is interpretation. This is where the role of historians um, comes in. Uh, historians have a unique ability to interpret things that happened in the past, um, to put them into a greater context, and hopefully to show how they might be important in creating the future. Yeah, yeah. And, and certainly disruptive cycles have been a reality for centuries, right, in terms of societies and economies. And in one of your recent presentations, you highlighted a very provocative headline from a Forbes article from a few years ago. And that message to business leaders was disrupt or die. Where did that concept of disruption come from? And, and can you help us understand what it really means? 
Well, disruption has become a, a, a hot topic over the past um, 10 or, or 20 years in the Silicon Valley and in, in other industries, uh, of course. Uh, I think a lot of it traces back to the, the work of uh, Clayton Christensen, who wrote uh, the, the famous book, The Innovator's Dilemma. Uh, Clay Christensen just, just died earlier this year, but in, in his book and the ones that followed, he talked about disruption as a kind of creative force that reshapes industries. And the Forbes headline that I uh, use in my, in my public speaking from time to time is meant to be provocative. Um, and sometimes when I'm addressing groups outside of uh, the Silicon Valley, outside of the US or outside of uh, the private sector, the whole idea of disruption is somewhat intimidating. And um, I think the, the learning um, for all of us is that uh, the flip side of disruption is often uh, a phase of unpre unprecedented innovation. Yeah, it's, it's true that um, some of the greatest innovations have come uh, during periods of, of the greatest upheaval, right? I mean, that you, we've seen that time and time again as, as if there's an incentive um, to uh, where great minds come together uh, to, to find uh, new and better solutions. Yeah, you bet. And you, you mentioned the coronavirus lockdown that we're all working under right now, the shelter-in-place orders. Um, the thing about disruption is you never quite know where it's going to come from. And this is, uh, this is a, a generational disruption. This is something that people will probably remember for their whole lives. And it will be interesting to see what kind of new innovations come out of this disruption that we're living through right now. Yeah, absolutely. We're already seeing uh, some of the uh, futurists, you know, talk about and, and seeing examples of things like uh, e-learning, you know, ways to kind of create remote knowledge transfer uh, that's been in place, but even now is accelerated, right? When you think about the schools, think about businesses that have to scale, uh, transfer of that knowledge across dispersed uh, workforces. And so all very rapidly, uh, there seems to be greater focus on some of uh, some of those types of things. Yeah, that's that's a good observation. And if you pull on that thread a little bit, of course, you've seen the footprints of this, uh, this shift over the past few years with things like the Khan Academy, uh, Great Lecture Series, Masterclass, and so forth, um, providing a different kind of distribution channel for education. Um, and one possible outcome uh, from that is, as if, if education can be accessible to more people, we might start to see a change in the taxonomy of, of education. Uh, you know, already some of the um, some of the physical sciences have have begun to get blurry just in our lifetimes, and you may even see. Um, a blurring of the lines between the you know, so-called vocational education and enrichment education. Maybe mm -hmm. that's a distinction mm -hmm. that won't matter as much anymore. Uh, interesting. And so just kind of just definitionally, you know, how we think about uh, the nature of, 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 I guess, educational tracks, right? We start seeing a blurring of lines and, uh, and just some evolution there. That's really interesting. Exactly. And of course, it's too soon to tell uh, what's going to happen in the current disruption, but education is certainly one place to watch. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of education and learning, uh, let's uh, take uh, the lens back uh, historically. And uh, as I was mentioning earlier, um, there have been um, some really, really compelling examples of disruptive markets um, where um, companies have had to face um, making some key decisions for their success and survival. Um, what are some of the most compelling examples that come to mind uh, when you think about companies that were impacted by a disruptive market and technology forces? Um, I gave a, a guest lecture a couple of weeks ago at the University of, of Michigan uh, on, on a classic um, Harvard Business School case um, focused on Kodak. And it, it's kind of funny. I've been teaching some version of that case since it was first published um, almost 20 years ago and uh, have had the, the privilege to, to meet the author of the case and some of the principals involved in the intervening time. And uh, it, you wouldn't necessarily guess that, um, you, you, you would sort of think that the story was ended um, with, with Kodak, but in fact, uh, it's a classic study in disruption in an established industry, but then also the aftermath of that disruption, which just keeps getting more and more weird and interesting with every passing year. Yeah, yeah, because the name Kodak, of course, is somewhat iconic, right? Very widely recognized, and it, it still exists, but it, it really exists in a different form than, than what we historically associated with, right? It's really more of just a, a brand um, as opposed to kind of a full portfolio, right, uh, or breadth of, of products. You bet. And one thing that I, I sometimes ask groups of people when we talk about Kodak is, you know, they, they had a, an amazing 100-year run becoming one of the most recognized brands in the world. How many of us are going to get a 100-year run in our, uh, in our companies? Um, but one of the insights uh, I, I think that I've uh, discovered about Kodak is that, number one, they, they were fully aware of the disruption that was coming in the photography industry. In fact, they, they prototyped what's arguably the first digital camera uh, back in the 70s. Uh, and then second, it wasn't just a matter of management being asleep at the switch. Um, it was a, a, a far more uh, subtle transformation in which they saw the industry structure changing, but were unable to adapt to the changes. Yeah, and in hindsight, that might even be more, uh, I guess, tragic or, or ironic in the sense of um, when the vision's in place, but just through internal forces or, or really translating that vision into actual execution where things kind of fall apart, right? But that's often the case. Yeah, exactly. The way that Christensen put it was, um, was something along the lines that the, the, the processes and systems that made you successful in the last phase uh, are going to be your undoing in the next phase. So it's that muscle memory and, and where you get comfortable with a, a way of doing things. But then um, I guess the, the lesson of this is um, always, always being nimble enough or being uh, situationally aware enough uh, that, that you have to adapt and constantly evolve the way that you do things. Exactly. And in, in the case of Kodak, they had uh, over a century developed, um, uh, you know, very broad routes to market through 
photo processing um, labs, drug stores, et cetera, and a huge business based on the consumables. And their customer was going to disappear and their consumables business was going to disappear through this transition. Um, and they knew it, but uh, there was no way to unwind a hundred year old ecosystem fast enough to adapt. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned digital photography kind of being uh, the big blocking item for them. Um, and in the past few years, digital technology has been identified as the basis for the fourth industrial revolution. And businesses are increasingly calling out digitization and digital transformation more and more in their strategic roadmaps. Don, in disruptive times, what does this really mean and where do you see things headed in and around this digital world? I, I mentioned this, this to that class at the University of Michigan because these are uh, future CIOs. It's sort of noteworthy that the World Economic Foundation tagged the, this fourth industrial revolution as being distinct from what they called the third industrial revolution, which was IT and digitization being a much more uh, profound and, and deep rooted transition that affects not only how things are done, but, but the structure of different industries. We, we already talked about, you know, potential impact on uh, education for the current disruption that we're seeing now. But, you know, uh, there there are other industries that are not as intuitive that will likely also be infect uh, be affected by this digital shift. Um, I'll, I'll I'll call an early tragedy of coronavirus um, the publication of Playboy magazine which just announced this week that because of the coronavirus, they could no longer afford to produce a print magazine. Who, who even knew Playboy was still a thing? But um, right. it's, it's, it's an example of an industry, journalism, which has been undergoing a digital transformation that just may have gotten you know, to the last rung on the ladder. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's true. And, but that's a great example of, uh, I guess, a company uh, that's kind of reached its end. But uh, are there some examples uh, in terms of companies that you're seeing out there that are breaking away from the pack that you consider as good examples of how they've embraced the new digital world and, and disruption? And, and what do you think is making a difference for them? I think companies that were born digital have uh, have a asymmetric advantage here. Uh, within a few miles of where I'm sitting right now on the San Francisco Bay, we've got uh, the headquarters of Uber and Airbnb, both of whom have been huge disruptors in uh, in transportation and hospitality, respectively, uh, but born digital. And this was a case where the incumbent industries believed they were perhaps on a path towards a digital, digital future, but didn't operationalize it in a way that was meaningful to the customer. In the best case, uh, moving business processes to digital structures, while it's hard for uh, an existing um, established industry, it's certainly possible. I'd point to one example here in the Silicon Valley that was a, an early leader in a kind of digital transition, um, Adobe, who, who we all know of as a, a software manufacturer, 
did something that few other companies have been able to do a few years ago and shifted their business from shrink-wrapped software to subscription. And in hindsight, it, it seems very straightforward, but their CEO had to go to the board and say, hey, we're not going to make 350 bucks on day one for every new customer anymore. We're going to make $15 a month or something. So the next few quarters are, are going to be terrible, but it'll all work out okay. And to their great credit, they, they powered through that painful transition and came out the other side, embracing this new digital paradigm, subscription-based, pay-by-the-drink um, uh, economics in, in a way that uh, a lot of incumbents can't. Yeah, that's a, that's a great example. And, of course, we've been talking a lot about uh, the uh, evolving of processes, of systems, uh, but people are always a key ingredient in the success of any organization. And, Don, can you think of new capabilities and skills that are going to be really critical for business leaders to have for them to successfully navigate through these highly disruptive times? Sure, of course, at the end of the day, it always comes down to um, to people. And I think one of the one of the things that um, it pays to be mindful of is as you're building teams, making sure that you've got a good balance between specialists and generalists. And what I mean by that is that a lot of our hiring and recruiting systems are based on on keywords, on human filtering that that really optimize for the specialists in a field um, that are not always the easiest to adapt when there's a disruptive market transition. The generalists in an organization sometimes have more adaptability, more flexibility to shift from one phase to another uh, in a way that helps the organization um, survive that kind of disruption. And I would think that there's this continuous learning cycle internally, right? Because people uh, can provide kind of real compelling, uh, real-time feedback, right? So as as you're trying to um, both through education, internal education, professional development, you're well, kind of helping in that way. This idea about democratizing education or changing the taxonomy of education. If we think of education as a lifelong uh, project uh, or a lifelong process, there's nothing that would keep anybody from going back to pick up a set of new skills in an adjacent uh, in an adjacent area. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, at Cisco, you led really, really large organizations, multi-tier, but very large um, organizations of people. Were you able to, to see some examples of where you really needed to be very intentional about driving um, a specific um, set of, uh, you know, professional development? inside of those organizations to really ensure them to be more successful over the long in, haul? In my, um, in my experience, the, the best kind of professional development happens on the job. Uh, it's not necessarily something that you're going to learn from a classroom, but um, there is an interesting convergence point where if you can take yourself out of that day-to-day -day fray in some way and look at perhaps non-traditional <clears throat> industries or non-traditional forces that are outside of 
of your um, of your regular job, cast a broader net to see what can be learned from other transitions going on. That in the end makes you a stronger leader internally. Yeah, yeah, definitely makes sense. I would also think things like uh, maybe creative job rotations. You know, kind of the use the uh, uh, often used term walk in walk in someone else's shoes, but you know where you're trying to create a little more diverse perspective and and rotate people through to ensure they don't get too comfortable in one role might help them in terms of that on the job kind of practical learning. Yeah, it's a it's a great way to think about it, and it's um, you know maybe. Um, it, it, not simply a, a challenge for the individual, but also it takes a, a certain amount of courage for a leader to ask somebody to take on, um, uh, uh, say, uh, a lateral uh, job that where the person hasn't necessarily already established a track record, but has the ability to uh, to bring some transformation to an already established process. That's right. It's it's almost the concept of, you know, being open to introducing this sense of personal disruption to your life in the sense of having to move into outside of that comfort zone and taking on something really just new and different. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, well Don, I really have enjoyed the conversation today. Um, great uh, perspective on uh, the disruption factor uh, and uh, that's very real uh, for all of us right now. So thank you again. Where can people find you to learn more? Uh, contact information is on um, my webpage at bk97digital.com. I also uh, occasionally publish um, work on LinkedIn, so people who are interested can, uh, can send a LinkedIn request as well. All right. We'll definitely be looking forward to that. Thanks again, Don. And I want to thank everyone for uh, joining. If you do uh, like this episode, please, really important, go out uh, to Apple Podcasts, rate and review. It's really important uh, to share your views on that. And also a reminder to visit marketimpactnow.com for the latest in business leadership perspectives. So long until next time.